Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, everyone. I almost said welcome back, friends, and then I felt like that was going to be weird. Why are they like, not? Why? They're friends. Our, they are friends, but I feel like we haven't said that, so it would be like us trying to change our vibe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, you know, year three of a pandemic. Yeah, it's everything is everything. exactly. <laughs> nothing is off limits. They're friends. They're colleagues. They're our welcome everything. Welcome back, friends. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay. Yeah, so you're three. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. You're through a pandemic. We are fully into February, January. We had a lot of IEP meetings. Man and I are filing a lot of complaints, getting a lot of questions in our Facebook group. And on Instagram, we started doing kind of a see our faces. We're alive. We're answering some of your questions. So as I reminded you guys last week, I'm reminding you again this week, if you have any questions that you would like Amanda and I to answer on our Instagram, please feel free to send us a DM and more likely than not that your question will be answered. (laughs) Yes. So for those of you who don't live in California and are always like, why do they always talk about California? Today we have a guest that's not from California. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about another state. No, I know we have a lot of guests that aren't from California, but we don't often talk about the differences because, you know, we don't practice in other states and we're not in other states. So we, you know, as much as we talk about the federal law and we talk about what happens across the border, what's supposed to happen across the board, we always like having guests from other states that can really talk about how it might be similar or different. Mm-hmm. Because it's always interesting to see how even though we can be in completely different states, things, some things can be just the same. And then in other ways, it can be very different. And that's the uniqueness of special education and special education law. Is, is that it is often so different, yet so much the same. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. And I'm excited to learn a little bit about California, too. But I'm here representing New Jersey today. <laughs> so Lisa, why don't yes. you tell us, introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are. Sure, sure. Yeah. So my name is Lisa Hernandez. And I am a special education attorney, also a mom of three. And like a lot of people in our field, definitely in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. I came to special ed law because of personal motivators. My own child has disabilities, but I was practicing law before he was born. And I have a background in disability discrimination, employment discrimination. I was a plaintiff side employment attorney before I started practicing special education law. So I recently made the switch, although I have been advocating and practicing on his behalf and on the behalf of my friend's kids for, for easily a decade. And that's kind of how I came to be part of special education. So I work with a great law firm here in New Jersey. It's called Madison Weinberg. And we do a lot of special education litigation. And I'm interested to talk to you guys about that because this is obviously the Inclusive Education Podcast. 
and New Jersey does not have a good reputation for inclusive education. <laughs> we see that in our client base as well. We say, most of our clients actually are looking for, without using the words, yeah. they're looking for more restrictive placements for their children mm. because they are really not getting the supports they need or they're not making progress in a more inclusive environment. And that's so disheartening when we hear parents who that's their reason for shying away from an inclusive program. Like certainly there are students that may need, I mean, I come from the perspective of I think any child can be educated if it's done right inclusively, but there are some students that may need some separation for certain things, but we do see that often where it's like, it's not because they don't believe in inclusion or it's not because they don't think that inclusion would work for their child, but it's because we have some schools, some administrators, some teachers that just don't get it and they're not willing to get it. Yes, I agree. I definitely think that that's true. You know, and New Jersey has a history, right? Like we have a history of being bad at this. And the case law, the case law kind of shows that, right? I think so. And and also, I mean, there have been, so not, so this is now a while ago. This is now 15 years ago, but Mm -hmm. in 2007, a, a group of parent advocacy groups, disability rights groups, all sued our state department of education for segregating students with disabilities Mm. at very high rates. And part of what they were looking for was a declaratory judgment or an order, a court order forcing New Jersey to start including students with disabilities more. And the litigation went on for a really long time. It settled in 2014. Oh my gosh. I know, right? And it settled with a court order instructing the Department of Ed in New Jersey to start enforcing the LRE aspects of special education laws. But here's something really interesting, and I feel like I see this today. So in 2014, when this settled, New Mm -hmm. Jersey was, I believe, the worst of all 50 states at inclusion. I think today we're still in like the bottom three. I'm not exactly sure, but it hasn't gotten a lot better. But here's what really stood out to me. So in some of the evidence that was collected Mm -hmm. during all of this settlement and this litigation Mm -hmm. showed that once students were included in a general education setting, students with disabilities, those students experienced the highest rate of IEP non-compliance. What? Jersey. Wow. So it was like once they got into the room. (laughs) Right, right. The supports they needed to succeed there were not implemented properly. Right, right. And now that's probably part attitude and culture. And it's also probably part support for the teachers, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Right. Proper classroom reports and trainings and things like that. Totally. But I honestly, I don't think it's any better today. I really think that there is this feeling that a lot, and this is anecdotal from just my own personal experience and that of clients and friends, Mm -hmm. is that kids have to earn their place Mm. in a general education Mm. setting. In New Jersey, which is horrible, which is horrible, and it's kind of like a sink or swim. It's like, okay, you want to be in ed? Well, you better be able to keep up. 
Right. Yeah, right. And keep up without us holding right. your hand, which yep. is contrary to what the law says. And, right. you know, we talk about this sometimes about how, unfortunately, because the only way to enforce IEP implementation or change is through litigation, special education has become this in, in many states and in many areas. This thing where if you don't file for due process, if you don't go through litigation, right. nothing's going to happen. Right. But then you have really big firms that represent school districts who don't see this as this is a school, this is a classroom, this is a child's education, mm-hmm. but rather this is litigation. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the evidence that I need. It's almost like high stakes litigation where it's like they say to their districts, give the parents what they want give them general education and we'll show them we'll then have the evidence to prove that it doesn't work and then you know or they're trying to get case law that like just is awful and instead of focusing in on the child and this individual case because that's what it is train the Mm -hmm. teachers to Mm -hmm. be able to implement Mm -hmm. inclusion so that we don't have more litigation And that's kind of like a consequence of this litigation world, right? Instead of us looking at how can we prevent litigation, we're looking at how to win litigation. Yes. And isn't that such a shame, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like there's such an absence of really good help for families who Mm -hmm. are not even thinking about lawyers and litigation. Right, right. Right. And part of that, I think, is and tell me if it's different in California, but part of that, I think, is the way the special education legal field is designed. Right. So, like, obviously, no one wants a lawyer. Nobody ever wants a lawyer. Right. People hire us because they need us. Right. Right. But when they hire us, right, they have been trying to navigate a legal arena. Right. For years, usually. They don't realize it's a legal arena. Or if they do, they don't realize the import of that and what it means in terms of their child's rights, their rights, what they can ask for for their kid, what the school is obligated to do, what is an appropriate response from your school district. Right, right. Right? So they're navigating this legal area where they really need guidance, but they end up piecing it together, right? Mm-hmm. From mm-hmm. parent groups, from, yeah. from people yep. who have been here before them, you know, from a friend whose kid is a little bit older, mm-hmm. right? Like people mm-hmm. are really piecing it together as they go. And then when the lawyers come in, mm-hmm. we say, okay, well, we can't work on contingency, right? And we can't usually because... There's really no money damages in special education law, right? Unless it's like a reimbursement type of thing. So here in New Jersey, we see a lot of people, if it's not pro bono or reduced rate or something, we bill hourly and we take a retainer, right? We take a retainer up front and we use it properly, right? So this is not about attorney ethics. This is more about transparency. But like someone comes to us and we say, okay, well, you know, give us $5,000, and we'll bill against it and we'll let you know if any is left over, we can give it back to you. And if not, we'll let you know when we need more. Right. And, you know, that's not to fault law firms necessarily. Put yourself in the position of the parents. Right. right. That's not transparent. I feel like parents are walking through this system 
without having the agency mm-hmm. that the law is intended to give them, right? Right, right. Don't have it in talks with the school district because not only are they the lower end of a, of a knowledge differential, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All knows more about the education process, but they also have a power differential. If they don't know their rights, they- 100%. Right, exactly. Yep. So they're sitting there, they don't have the agency, right? So let's say you go in and you guys know, right? Like I don't need to preach to the choir, but you go into <laughs> a meeting and let's say my son is hard of hearing, right? And I say, I want, you know, he needs multi-sensory reading instruction and mm-hmm, he needs mm-hmm. a teacher of the deaf and he needs a sign language interpreter or something, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And the school says, oh, well, you know, he's the only student who's mm-hmm. hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. So we probably can't get a teacher of the deaf just for him. Right. And, you know, he's already in fifth or sixth grade. Mm-hmm. We don't really do multi-sensory instruction as much in those grades, but his grades are fine. He'll yep. be fine. You know, we have a teacher who knows sign language. <laughs> Right. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the parent leaves and they're like, wait, what? So I have agreed because I'm supposed to be collaborating and they said they would give him a sign language totally. interpreter and his grades are okay. So I guess that's okay. And they don't know, right? And then and you're told you can't leave this room until you sign this because nothing's going to start unless you sign this. Well, so that's what California. That? I was just going to say how, and just to kind of take it back just a step, can you describe what the system is once an attorney gets involved? Because in California, we deal, it's administrative law. So it is the office of administrative hearings that we would bring a due process hearing complaint. And we, you know, mediation is voluntary and then a hearing is set. And that is like the four and like 90 to 95 percent of cases once filed are settled. So a very few amount, maybe 100 or so cases are heard in front of the office administrative hearings. We have okay. attorney friends in New York and we know how New York is is for special education. Is New Jersey similar? Yeah, they just go to hearing. Is it similar oh. in New Jersey? Oh, so it's not like that. So New Jersey's okay. process sounds more like California's process. Oh, okay. So okay. We will usually, you know, we'll make our requests to the district for what our clients want. And if need be, then we request, we file for due process, but we go through mediation first. Right. Okay. Um, and yes, and we do. We If mediation doesn't resolve it, then there's the settlement conference mm-hmm. and we see a lot more settled cases than litigated cases. And I think one of the big motivators for that, not only is getting what, you know, like moving on with your life and getting things in order, but New Jersey is also really, really slow to decide due process cases. Okay. Um, Like it could easily take, I mean, it's definitely not the 45 days that's Uh, written into the law. uh, So we have that, somewhat too because in California they've switched the mediation process where you no longer automatically get a mediation so you're gonna get a hearing date when you first file within 45 days but if you say I want a mediation you have to mutually agree with the school district on a mediation date and then your hearing is set for 30 to 60 days after that and unfortunately, if school districts where their attorneys have way too many cases and they say, oh, you filed this middle beginning of December, we're going to have mediation in March or April. So then next thing you know, your hearing's in June. 
Yeah, I think that sounds similar. That sounds very similar to New Jersey, actually. Okay. And, um, and so that's... We, yeah. know, when we file for due process, there's a... The expectation is that you'll mediate first. Right, right. Unless... Same. Right, unless both parties waive it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, And mm-hmm. then that's kind of how you move through the process. So it actually sounds pretty similar to California. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Because then going back to the hypothetical that we were kind of going into, which I haven't said the word hypothetical in forever. It brings me back to law school. <laughs> which, by the way, felt personally attacked when you said 2007 was 15 years ago. I was like, I had to do the I math. Know. And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, going back. So, you know, you're a parent and th- we get this all the time. You know, I thought it seemed okay. So I signed, you know, and then my child, then the gaps start happening. Then he's in middle school and he really needed X, Y, and Z. But hey, they gave him this. And so, yeah. you know, I or just accepted it. A, or if you're in a state that doesn't require consent, because like, right. we all work, we realize we're so lucky in California. I say lucky in, in a really grand sense of like, yeah, we are parents are able to consent or not consent versus other states. The IEP team says this is what we're offering, and the parent leaves, and unless they fall for due process, that's what's being offered. That's what's that's being New provided. Jersey. That's New Jersey. We, the parent doesn't. The parent only needs to consent to the initial IEP in New Jersey with a okay. signature. Otherwise, yeah. it's uh, fifteen days. Yeah, from right. the date of the final. IEP that was proposed, and if the parent doesn't file, the IEP gets changed. So we have that here. So wait, so let me ask you about this. So if a parent doesn't sign the IEP in California, what happens? Whatever the last consented to IEP, so what your state put is, would Mm -hmm. continue. So where this is utilized a lot with families is where a student is in a certain placement, so say general education, and the school district says, I want, we want to place you in a special day class. We're pulling you out. It's not working. We don't think it's working. Even if the parent's saying, well, you're not implementing the IEP properly. So then the parent says, well, I don't agree. So they don't sign it. So the kid is in general education until either party files for due process and you come to an outcome, which there's a lot of things in California where parents would have stay put and the school district just continues. So like Mm -hmm. something like placement, if there's that big disagreement, the child having behaviors, the school districts most of the time will file for due process against the parents to enforce their IEP. But mm-hmm. in cases where, say, everything else is agreed upon, but the parent doesn't agree to a decrease from 60 to 30 minutes of speech, many school districts in California will just continue. They're not going to change the IEP to say, okay, fine, we'll offer what you want. They'll just keep it in state put. But then the next IEP you have, they'll try to push it again, and they'll say, well, we, you know, we're in state put for the 60 minutes of speech, but... We still recommend only 30, so we're going to again recommend 30. And then the parent has to remember, okay, I said I didn't consent to it last time. I'm going to continue to not consent to it. And unless the school district files for due process, it stays put. It continues. Do you guys feel like that gives parents more power than, let's say, like, whether you sign it or not, here's what we're doing unless you hire an attorney and file? So, I mean, that's a a parent is aware that they have that power. Yes. But many of them aren't. Yeah. That's the thing. I have to consent to the entire IEP. I mean, but there is something to having that timeline. Like we have a lot of timelines for a lot of different things, right? So it's like, okay, we're going to do assessments. They have to produce the assessment plan within a certain amount of time. And then the parent signs it. And then, you know, we have 60 days from the date of 
the district receiving that signed assessment plan to conduct the assessments and hold an IEP meeting. So, you know, we're used to timelines in California, but what's interesting with what you had said, it was like, well, within 15 days, you got to like figure stuff out. Cause, and not that we would necessarily ever recommend this, but you know, we had some parents that would be in state put for years. And so then yeah. nobody's doing anything. They're still having IEPs. And really the way the case law and the way the law has come down, the IEP team should either hold another IEP, right? Try an alternative dispute resolution or file within a reasonable amount of time. But what all these school districts, especially like a, a huge school district, like Los Angeles Unified School District, they're not suing, right? Like we'll have kids that'll have the same IEP for a few years, which is a violation yeah. in and of itself to a certain extent. But yeah, it's the way that New Jersey it's, handles it is interesting. Yeah, I find that yeah. very interesting. Well, recently went down a very bad slippery slope in the Ninth Circuit because a couple years back there was a case in the Ninth Circuit that basically a family said, well, you should have filed for due process against us because we were in state put for too long. And I'm like totally paraphrasing, but, and the Ninth Circuit essentially said, yeah, school district should have filed for due process. And so the slippery slope that has been caused from this is now there are more school districts than there used to be that are filing for due process sooner. So mm-hmm. like Ricky said, there are some parents that are in state put for years that it's still the case in many districts, but it's not as much as it used to be. And again, it's more common for smaller things like the related services mm-hmm. than it, it, and sometimes even for an aid than it is for like placement. Placement is a big thing where school districts are quick to file for due process. So it is now this situation where, you know, a school district might say, we're recommending this change or recommending to start or stop something and the parent doesn't agree. And, you know, the school is thinking, well, we still recommend this thing. We still think based on our experience, our knowledge, like this is the right thing. But it's not such a huge deal where we feel the need to go through litigation. Like, it's not a huge deal. Like, we'll continue doing it. So now the, like, legal precedence is, well, they're not allowed to do that, which is dangerous. Because Mm -hmm. if a school is trying to say, you, but I'll just let it go because I want to continue this collaborative relationship, they're now being told they're not allowed to do that, which is, like, completely counter to what we should be doing as IEP teams and collaborating. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that's right. That's kind of one small difference in the law that right. has this like really big ripple effect Absolutely. Yes. Yep. on the way education is provided. And so like having that information and just like living it personally as well, can you tell us more about ThinkSped? Oh, sure. Yes. ThinkSped is my, I'll call it my passion project. Yeah. ThinkSped is a blog that I write to try to provide as much information as I can Mm -hmm. to whoever wants to read it. And the intent is to give families a much deeper, more nuanced understanding of the world of special education. So that's why I started it. I feel like knowledge should be free, right? Mm -hmm. and, And it is, right? So legal experience and legal guidance costs money, which, and I'm not going to say it shouldn't, right? I love pro bono work, but, you know, services are valuable, right? But the information, the knowledge, if it can help people to navigate for better educational outcomes for their children, 
or for their students, right? Whoever is reading it, then it should. So I try to approach each aspect of special education. And I've been writing it for a couple months now, maybe three months now. I try to approach each aspect of special education from a a few different lenses Mm -hmm. so that you can really kind of see, you know, something useful to kind of help that knowledge and power differential at the IEP meeting. That is what I'm doing with that. That's so needed. I mean, the reasons why we created this podcast and, you know, we used to do blogs and all kinds of stuff, but we would prefer to just talk because, you know, attorneys like to talk, you know, is that there's not an, there's information out there if parents take a lot of time to research it, but they don't have that time. So being able to find information in smaller chunks and in more, you know, easily accessible methods and, you know, being able to be empowered to do as much as they can. Because like what we say all the time is there's so much that a parent, when they're, they have an arsenal of knowledge that they can do without an attorney. But if they don't know all of these things, then oftentimes they just need to, well, I have to get an attorney. But like, you know, in California, the knowledge of you do not have to sign your kids IEP is huge. I can't tell you how many times like we've had presentations and we do a Q&A and like we have a parent say, wait, I don't have to sign that. You know, and so like the little things like that, that as much as we can provide information to families and empower them, it's huge. It is. It really, really is. And I think about, I made a post maybe last week or so, and it was more personal. It was about, I'm having some personal struggles with my own child's placement Mm. right now. Mm. And so, you know, we all go through that, right? Yep. And it was just a rough it was just a rough week, right? It was a rough week. And, you know, I felt like I was just fighting, 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 Mm -hmm. and then crying, 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 and then getting up to do it all again. And I was like, I just thought to myself, you know, like, if I, as a special education attorney, who has the time (laughs) to spend advocating for my own child, like 10 to 20 hours a week. The expertise even, right? Like, And and if I can be in this position where I'm spending my days fighting and crying, right? this is so broken. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So broken. Absolutely. And people need to know what they don't know. People don't know what they can ask for for their kids. And that's just, it's huge. Another big, huge thing, evaluation. Oh my right? God. Yeah. People don't know what types of evaluations mm-hmm. to get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand how to interpret the results of bell curve evaluation. Yes. And I am no statistician, but it's so important mm-hmm. to know how to interpret those results. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that you can take two different evals exactly. that are both scored on a bell curve yep. and compare them to each other. Right. Right. That is apples to apples, yeah. right? Yeah. And um yeah, and in New Jersey we use we don't have to. The law has recently changed. We schools used to have to diagnose or classify specific learning disability by doing a discrepancy evaluation between Model, like full yeah. scale IQ, right, yeah. Full scale IQ and whatever, let's say a reading score. They don't have to do the discrepancy model anymore, but a lot of districts still do it. And kind of the rule of thumb around here is 20 points. And that can vary, you know, from town to town. But a lot of parents don't know that, right? Right. Or they also don't know that 
you can take the full scale IQ from one evaluation. And as long as a reading evaluation was also scored on a bell curve, you can take the score from that and you can Mm -hmm. establish that 20 point difference or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just, there's a lot of information out there, you know, that you never need to know it. You don't need to know it unless you're in special education. And that's how a lot of schools treat that information as a need to know basis. Unfortunately, (laughs) they're not like, they're like, let's make sure each meeting that you have this procedural safeguards literally just going to say that. Yeah. May or may not be accurate and also is written in a way that's pleased and parents don't understand the actual implications of it. But sure. Yes. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, you know, what you're saying is so important. And a lot of times when we're explaining things, breaking things down, and we do a lot of that. And Amanda and I have said this several times, we're counselors in every sense of the word. I wish I had my psychology degree, if you will, or or just training, you know, because we are oftentimes, we're the first attorney a family's ever dealt with, one, right? Most of the time, yeah. yeah. Two, yeah, they've been trying to navigate this entirely different language. And let's just say they're English speaking. Then we have a subsector, like a lot of my clients are Spanish speakers. So then you're in a system that indicates that they will provide translation services and things like that. And I mean... People very rarely ever think that I know another language and I listen. And, you know, a lot of times they're not saying things correctly, you know, so I have to correct them during my EP meeting or, you know, explain things even more. And if it's hard for English speaking parents, it's definitely a completely different ball game for those families that speak another language. But kind of going back to everything that you've, you know, hit on, it's so tremendous to me that you're able to be able to have this blog, which I'm sure is really cathartic, especially after having that tough week and being able to kind of pull it out in writing. I know writing for me is cathartic. I don't do it enough. But where I was going with that was, you know, a lot of times, you know, parents are, they feel like they are learning a different language and we'll write these complaints and ours are a bit lengthier than most, but it's like the parent will see everything for the first time that's happened to them over the years and they just want blood at that point, right? Because they're just so, because it's like you're the lobster in a boiling pot, but you don't, you know, it, it just slowly, incrementally, like the heat goes up and up and up and up. And then all of a sudden you're in over your head. So I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this conversation. Where can our listeners I know, obviously, it's thinksped.com, right? If people wanted to reach out to you, is that the best place? Or do you have a Facebook or? I do. It's thinksped is on, is a page on Facebook as well. Okay. And it has a, those are probably the best two places. The website and the Facebook page are good to reach out, I would say. Excellent. One of those, yeah, no, of course. One of the ways that we have been trying to end our podcast, and it's kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, Mm -hmm. but if there is a kind of feel good story, either from your clients or from your own child, that a win, if you will, (laughs) in this IEP (laughs) process that you would like to share, we would love to end on that note. You know what? I do have. A win. It's going to be a personal one. It's going to be my own child. So I'll do it quickly. But so Mario is, he's my son and he is autistic and he has some developmental disabilities. Really, really tough 
verbal communication. He, he has a very hard time communicating. And so the schools that have tested him on these cognitive tests have always uh, come up with these like super low right. numbers for his IQ, right? And so then with the low IQ, the school basically is like, well, what do you expect to happen, mom? Well, what do you expect him to learn, mom, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I found, I finally took him to a private neuropsychologist, which is a big step. And like a big step financially for families, right? And I took him to a private neuropsychologist who really just like knows how to communicate with kids who don't have verbal language. Okay. And she gave him an IQ test Mm -hmm. and he tested in the 68th percentile. Isn't that incredible? Just one person just doing it in a just a slightly different manner, but that's still yeah. within the realm of like, it's not like something outside of the box, right? It, it, these are all available and it's the 68%. That's tremendous. And, you know, and it just, it takes someone who's got the experience yep. to do it. Yep. And maybe who has like a little, little faith in the kids, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yep. And so I'm so excited. So I called like every educator <laughs> who ever told me that right, right. Like, I need to I need to manage my expectations mm. about capable of and I was like, here, manage. Yeah. Manage this, uh, guys. See, it's so and, hard because I know that they think they're coming from a good place, but if you haven't lived a day in the life, it sounds so condescending. <laughs> When they say stuff like that. Yeah, it just, it doesn't mean, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's just like, you know what you, I know my child and it's just what, that's one of the worst feelings I can't even imagine, but yeah, no, you should have called them all up and plastered it everywhere. and been The big takeaway from that, I would say is other than just like, you know, ha ha. Yeah. The takeaway (laughs) is sometimes it can be hard yeah. to find the people who have faith yeah. in children with disabilities. When you find them, mm-hmm. hold on to them because yes. they are priceless. Absolutely. I love that. You, Lisa, are definitely our people. And I think Amanda and I are probably already turning our wheels to see how we can get you back on. <laughs> I would love it. This was wonderful. Yeah. I feel like I'm I am, yes, I feel like I'm talking to my people. Right? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Thank you guys so much. And thank you so much for being on. And just for our listeners, we want to, again, just remind you, we have our weekly Q&A. Please be sure to go on our Instagram and submit questions. You finally get to on a regular basis see Vicky and I's face. We try our best, but anyway, please go on there, check it out. Let us know if you have any questions. You can also submit if you have topics you'd like us to talk about on the podcast, or if you want to nominate a guest, that's on there as well. So we hope you guys have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.